The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It is indeed The Enviro Show, the greenish show here on the station on SAFM, and I'm Nancy Richards. And together with Kim Winter and uh, Derek Fordyce, we're going to be giving you all sorts of green information over the next hour. And don't forget, if you'd like to be part of it, if you'd like to join in, you can do that on 0892102010. You can give us a call or pop us a message on our Facebook page. That's The Enviro Show on SAFM. So what have we got? Well, following on from President Jacob Zuna's State of the Nation address, we thought we, uh, I hope you've been listening to that, we thought we would get some response from Earth Life Africa, who, as you will certainly have heard, I would imagine during the day, they've had lots to say about ESCOM's application for a postponement on air pollution standards, so it should be interesting. I'm going to be talking to Tristan Taylor, who's a project coordinator at Earth Life. Earth Life. And then on a, a slightly fresher note, with Valentine's Day coming up tomorrow, going to be talking about flower farming and how environmentally friendly is that. We'll be chatting to Carl Malherber of Oak Valley Flower Farm in Elgin here in the Western Cape. And after that, alternative energy. Heard a lot there about ESCOM. We're going to be hearing a little bit about ESCOM. We consistently hear about ESCOM because there's so much to say. But what we're going to talk about later on is alternative energy with REFSA. That's the Renewable Energy Forum of South Africa. We're going to be hosting a Pan-African conference next month and we'll be talking to founder of DLO Energy Resources, Linda Olagunju. And also to one of the delegates from uh, from Nigeria, he's Ayodeli Oni uh, and he's a lawyer. Uh, so, and then to close right at the end, uh, a little bit of a green goodie. We hope it's a green goodie, it could be a green baddie, not quite sure. A little bit of green consciousness from an unlikely quarter, I suppose. Burberry, the luxury fashion goods people, are detoxifying their fibres. And we'll be talking to the Greenpeace campaigner, Ilza Smith, and I think Greenpeace had something to do with that. A little bit of an intervention, I think you could say. Eco-information, well, lots and lots. Uh, ESCOM and EarthLife seem to be at war. Surely you will have heard about the grievances expressed by EarthLife over ESCOM's application for a postponement on its compliance with air quality standards. Um, so says EarthLife, environmental governance in South Africa is cracking at the seams. If the government permits ESCOM to exceed air pollution standards of 14 of their coal-fired power stations, it would put the nail in the coffin of air quality legislation that protects people's health. Well, there you go. That's what EarthLife is saying. We'll be chatting to them in just a minute. Um, and they say, uh, ESCOM, uh, from, as I heard earlier, ESCOM themselves say that they have no option if they're to meet the demand for energy. So where does this leave all the rest of us? And uh, as I say, going to be talking about renewable energy later on. Maybe that's an answer. I'm not sure. But maybe you've got thoughts on what is, is, this, is this a good thing that ESCOM are perhaps given, uh, given uh, a permit to exceed air pollution standards? Or is this just, as, as EarthLife Africa is saying, it's uh, just the first crack in the scene. Let us know what you think. You can pop us a mail at enviro at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook right now. It's uh, The Enviro Show on SAFM. Other little bits of eco-info. Uh, I fell upon a couple of headlines. Galileo's astronomical puzzle over Venus and Jupiter is solved after 400 years. Well, we're going to be getting uh, Case Raystake to give us his thoughts on that when we speak to him next, which will be very soon, in fact, I think next month. Global warming pause explained, hopefully something that he may be able to explain as well, or certainly we'll see if we can get an expert on that one. And here's one to get the fur flying. Um, zoo giraffe killed amid public anger. You might have heard about this one, rather, rather ugly one. In fact, I think it was at the uh, Copenhagen Zoo. Copenhagen said to be the greenest city in, uh, in Europe 
where a perfectly healthy 18-month-old giraffe was shot with a bolt gun in front of a whole crowd of people. Um, Quite a long story there, but uh, maybe you've got thoughts about that one too. I suppose they had their reasons, but it seems a little bit of a dramatic way to do it in front of a whole bunch of people. And as I say, on animals, we are going to be hearing about Burberry, the fashion label, who've gone detoxic. They're going to go toxic-free. But it seems whilst they, they're detoxing, what they're also doing is uh, busy still using fur in their products. So you see um, fur flying all over the place. So we've got all sorts of things lined up. And don't forget, if you've got suggestions about what you'd like to hear about here on the Enviro Show, pop us a mail, probably best, enviro at safm.co.za. And World Radio today, and wouldn't the world be a poorer place without it? Well, SABC joins UNESCO in celebrating World Radio Day, a day to celebrate radio as a medium to improve international cooperation between broadcasters and to encourage major networks and community radio alike to promote access to information and freedom of expression over the airwaves. World Radio Day, 13th of February, 2014. The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show it is, and it's your show, don't forget, because of the planet is important to all of us, so if you've got input... Give us a call, 0892102010. In fact, you might like to join us on this one. Um, as you will have probably heard, if uh, hopefully you've been listening to President Jacob Zuma's State of the Nation ad- of address, but kind of depending on your area of interest, perhaps you will have picked up on some of the things that did or didn't give you hope within that speech. And if you have environmental concerns, well, what did it mean to you, his speech? Well, with her take on the line from Earthlife, we have project coordinator, uh, his take, sorry, Tristan Taylor, got him on the line. Hi, Tristan. Hello, Nancy. How are you? Sorry, suddenly change your gender there. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'll yeah. consider it a compliment. Oh, good, good, good. Um, okay, Tristan, I, I feel terribly tempted to ask you first about ESCOM and the uh, the situation there. I don't know how au fait you are with uh, your company, your organization's call for ESCOM to not have its uh, its uh, application for um, for the air pollution standards to be revoked for them. Uh, uh, any thoughts on that one quickly? Um, yeah, it's a, and it ties in with the president's speech today. It is a complete democratic failure. In 2005, we passed regulations on air quality. Now, ESCOM was part of the legislative process on that. And they're supposed to kick in from 2015 onwards. So essentially what we have as ESCOM, as a state-owned enterprise, is seeking to exempt itself from laws passed by the state. So the state is not even obeying its own laws, which is a huge democratic failure. And really is the repeal of environmental legislation that has got, been developed since 1994. And it will have a very real-term consequence to um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people's lives. You know, we're talking about material that comes out of ESCOM smokestacks, which causes asthma, upper respiratory disease problems, and is even uh, associated with fetal deformities in, um, obviously, pregnant women. So... There's huge amounts of health impacts that will come from ESCOM, and it's just not ESCOM. Sassel's also applying for uh, air quality exemptions, and those are the two, by far, major polluters in the country. So this is a very sad occasion for South Africa's air quality laws, and they're there to protect us and to ensure that our constitutional right to clean, safe, and healthy environment is actually maintained. So we're going back on the Constitution, essentially. Yes, and I think in your in your um, release, the Earth Life Relief, it kind of suggests that ESCOM knew about this all along, and, and it seems that didn't make any attempt to 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 for advance their compliance, if you like. It it seems that you know all along they've been working towards a postponement. 
Yes, I mean, they were, they were part of the process of bringing about this legislation. You know, they provided comments to it. It went through in that it was a fully cons- public consultation in the air quality laws. And they've literally just done nothing. I mean, what it has boiled down to is that they probably never even intended to comply with the legislation and basically decided to save money um, over people's health. Now, in terms of saving money, if they had actually able to keep the Madupi power station to cost and to budget, uh, they would have actually have had more than enough money to put in the technology mm-hmm. to retrofit existing power stations. You know, once again, um, Tristan, I, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt here because sure. once again, we don't have anybody from ESCOM and I think it's not fair to, you know, I mean, w- one can say anything. One of the things that I think ESCOM themselves are saying, though, is that they actually, without doing what they're doing, they cannot meet the demand. And it has to be said, there are a huge amount of people in this country who don't have electricity, who need electricity. Uh, and your response to that would be what? How are we to meet this demand? Um, well, I think it's one of the things you're going to talk about later in your program, yeah. actually, is it's through an expanded renewable energy project. Um, the first solar PV plant came online, uh, I think it was about four or five months ahead of schedule. We're now seeing that wind is now cheaper than new coal in South Africa, onshore wind. And so there's a lot of appetite, and there's a lot of very smart people out there ready to develop and bring in renewable energy projects quickly. So if we want to meet our energy demand, that's the way we do it. Right. Okay. That's a, it's, it's one of those topics that we could be going around and around in circles, like a wind turbine, I suppose. But Tristan, you were listening, hopefully, with with um, you know green ears pinned back to the president's speech. Y- your take? That's probably the world's uh, sorry, South Africa's most anti-environmental state in the nation speech uh, to date. Uh, it's very bad news for the environment and very bad news for the people who live in South Africa. Um, I'm not quite sure where to start, but I'll start with. Um, the president's sort of uh, support of the strategic invest, uh, infrastructure bill and basically the fast-tracking of environmental approvals for mines and other associated developments. Um, under the legislation, the proposed legislation, there will be no public comment on environmental impact assessments at all. Um, this is, again, contrary to the Constitution, about three different clauses in the Constitution. And what we're really seeing is that a lot of the environmental laws that were put in place post-apartheid, and the apartheid government was terrible when it came to the environment. That's one of the reasons why we have acid mine drainage in Haoteng, uh, acid mine drainage in Pumalanga, uh, destruction of farmland, etc., etc., is because we didn't have a very good environmental laws and regulations. A lot of the existing environmental laws and regulations are being repealed and gone backwards in the new legislation. So what it means is that we will not have time to do environmental impact assessments properly. And they just don't look at environmental things, they look at social things, they look at financial elements. There's a very broad sweep that environmental impact assessments are supposed to look at. So what does it mean? So we're going to return to the uh, days of run-and-gun mining, quickly develop mines very quickly, very little um, uh, investigation to the consequence of those minings. Uh, mines and, you know, the long-term impacts will be borne by South Africa. Acid mine drainage, I think, is a very good cause. Um, we also see that uh, his support for shale gas um, could mean turning the Karoo, this may sound a little bit flippant, but it is probably true, into the Niger Delta. Uh, there's very strong concerns about the Karoo aquifer and the pollution of water there and the destruction of agricultural and tourism jobs, which he did mention was a, 
uh, you know, priority of the government. Um, and then the other big thing that we noticed from his State of the Nation speech today was his support for the procurement of 9,600 megawatts of new nuclear power. Um, this is actually, quite frankly, a little bit bizarre because the National Development Plan, which he quite rightly supported in the beginning of the program as the government's flagship plan, um, quite specifically calls for a delay on nuclear power and an investigation into the cost of nuclear power to see if it's appropriate for South Africa. Now, in March last year, the National Planning Commission conducted such a report, and it came out quite categorically that we didn't even need to make a decision on nuclear power for another 10 to 15 years, and that the risks to the economy of such a program were intense. You know, we're talking about a trillion rand, Nancy, that will be spent, which is, you know, money away from hospitals, it's money away from schools, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're really surprised that the president came out of that. Now, the Department of Energy's official energy plan at the moment is draft, but it will should, should be final soon, is also calling for a delay. So we've got to the president has gone one way, while the rest of the parts of government have gone another way. Um, yeah, so many things to discuss, aren't there? Um, is that it, or have you got more before I pop in I have questions? a little bit more. Um, okay, okay, go for um, it. Yeah, the president quite rightly said that we you know, must protect our heritage, and he talked quite a bit about that. Um, one of the sites of the new nuclear plant at Tayskunt is on the site of an archaeological site that dates back to the Stone Age, would qualify as a UNESCO heritage site. So the South African Heritage Association said will be completely destroyed by the plant. So again, we're seeing a lot of the contradictory aims. Um, and, you know, he did make quite a big deal about um, COP17 and the Durban platform that was adopted at the UN Climate Conference when it was held in Durban. And, you know, the scientific assessment of that program that came out of Durban was that this is going to lead it to at least three degrees climate change. Well, that means, you know, four or five degrees in southern Africa, which is, you know, way beyond our agricultural, ad agricultural sector's adaptive capabilities. Um, so it will mean hunger, um, drought, uh, extreme weather, malaria in the high felt, and other environmental catastrophes. Um, so that's why I say it was probably the most anti-environmental mm -hmm. speech mm -hmm. I've come out of. Um, the South African government since 1994. A couple of things, I'm, I'm sure. And mm. if anybody would like to give us a call, you're welcome, 0892 10 2010. Just coming back to the environmental impact assessment and, and the acid mine drainage and the, the whole mining issue, mm. uh, what the, the big flag, red flag for me was, though, you said the no public comment. Is that official? Do we know? I mean, is there, you know, are, there, are there all the doors closed for any sort of public input like yourselves or anybody else for that matter? Any other well, bodies? it would, would seem to. Um, we've made submissions um, through the Centre for Environmental Rights in Cape Town onto the bill. And, you know, the public, there's a right enshrined in the existing legislation that the public can make comments on EIAs. So if you're concerned as a member of the public about something you think is going to be an environmental or social impact, you can make a comment, and government is supposed to take that comment into account. That provision is being removed from the Strategic invest, uh, Infrastructure Bill. In the name of fast-tracking things like coal mines, um, you know, very, very rapidly. Mm. If anybody, another question quickly before I, I wrap and, and get your information, your details, if anybody would perhaps like to be in touch or query what you have to say. Um, the departments, the relevant departments, I suppose, um, 
certainly the Department of Tourism one way or another, but the Department of, of Ministry of um, the Minister of Environmental Affairs, Edna Molewa, for instance, do you feel then that they are being perhaps overridden? Um, yeah, the sort of a pithy remark is the Department of Environmental Affairs is where idealism goes to die. Um, they are being overridden, and environmental legislation is being overridden. And this is, you know, this is not merely a case of saving a butterfly or something similar, which is quite important, but this is really about social impacts. Um, to give you an example, you talked about it a bit earlier, acid mine drainage is incurring in Mpumalanga from old and abandoned and even existing coal mines. This is actually threatening the main maize-growing region, one of the main maize-growing regions in the country. So, you know, that's threatening our food supply, the staple crop, which means, you know, prices will rise, people will have less money, they will have less to eat, childhood malnutrition. There's a very strong link between what happens in the environment and people's welfare. Thin so, end of the wedge, thin end of the wedge. But, you know, um, I, I have this sort of sense of you being like the opposition. Do you know what I mean? It's that you're a bit like the opposition party to to what's going on here. I suppose what we would really like to do, perhaps, Tristan, is, is get you in some at some stage to talk about what can be done. Uh, it's very easy to knock policies and it's easy to knock speeches, but I think what's important is that we need to look forward to see what we actually can do. Lastly, if anybody would like to know more, uh, would like to comment or would like to sort of get feedback from you, earthlife.org.za, best to go onto your website? Yes, it is. Uh, you can also see our plans on our website for how we would transition to a renewable energy future and create okay. lots of jobs in the process. Um, these are win-win situations. And the another free to call our office on 11 3662. Going to repeat all those details. Tristan, lovely. Well, quite lovely. <laughs> Hopefully we'll talk again another day about something a little bit more positive. But uh, thank you very much for your feedback. Thanks. Thank you, Nancy. Tristan Taylor, who is a project coordinator at Earthlife, talking there about the President's State of the Nation address. Well, if you would like to find out a little bit more, Earthlife earthlife.org.za earthlife.org.za I think Kim's put it up on our Facebook page yep. or if you want to phone them directly 011 339 3662 The Enviro Show Sure, well that was one hell of a way to start the programme wasn't it? But there you go if you're wondering about the green aspect of the President's speech that's Earthlife's take on it Well next up here on The Enviro Show that very greenest of gifts flowers and with it being Valentine's Day tomorrow, uh, I suspect there are going to be more than a few changing hands. And for, for sure, there are going to be some people who simply don't approve of buying cut flowers. I can hear them tutting already. But I'm quite sure that there are many more who are only happy to receive them because they are symbolic one way or another. Well, on the line, we have somebody who at this time of year, I imagine, must be running at full speed. He's Carl Malherber. He's uh, of the Oak Valley Flower Farm in Elgin in the Western Cape. Got him in the line. Hi, Carl. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent. I imagine you must be exhausted. <laughs> no, no, this, this is part of the part and parcel of the deal. So we 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 busy gearing up, as a matter of fact, for Mother's Day already. So Mother's oh, really? Day, oh, Mother's okay. Valentine's. Been that, been there and done that on the on the Valentine's Day flowers. How far in advance? Because you can't just sort of snap your fingers and have all your all your roses and blooms ready for Valentine's Day. How far in advance do you start planning, and to what sort of extent? Give us an idea of how big you are. Um, we're the biggest in the Western Cape. Total, total area is around 15 hectares, production area. Um, and then it's, it's amongst, we'll spread over three, call it structures, um, a proper greenhouse, um, and then shade net structures and open area. 
and then we will switch um, depending on the product and the time of the year between um, those three um, options. Um, the, the planning goes on bulbs. Bulbs we all import from, from Holland. Um, and that, um, the planning for, for this Valentine's, as far as the type of bulbs and the volume and the color that we import, um, happened about 18 months ago, really. Huh. Is um, there, is, are there sort of color trends? I mean, it, you know, what's the color for Valentine's Day 2014, then? Well, it should be. It should be the standard red and white pinks. You, you're pushing mm. me towards the other side of, of the coin now. I'm, I'm more production-orientated. Than, than the aesthetics. Okay, well, let's stay with the production because that's really what we're, we're here to talk about. But bulbs from Holland. Now, already I'm thinking, why? Can we not produce them here? We can. Um, and we've looked at it. If, if, look, we're a production unit. And when I say production units, I'm talking specifically a cut flower. If we, as, as Ugg Valley, have to go to, to a bulb producing, um, bulb mm -hmm. is only one section of, of what we do, but if we have to do, go and produce on bulbs, we will need double the hectares we have at the moment, mm -hmm. and specific soil and specific techniques. And, and without a doubt, the, the Dutch are the best at, at that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for us to, to, to get a bulb and not get the production off with the amounts or the high percentage of input costs we have, we, we just won't make money. I suppose when one thinks bulbs, you think sort of daffodils and tulips, or certainly from Amsterdam, I suppose you think tulips. Yes, definitely. Give us an idea of the range of different types of flowers that you do. Because, because we, we're down on the Western Cape, we're sort of isolated. Um, Joburg, for instance, has a central market, um, so the farmers there can, can specialise in something, uh, send it to the market, and whoever wants to buy it can just go there and, and pick and choose. Because we're down in the south, we, we have to do, well, bits of everything. So we, we, and, and we do chrysanthemums, which is basically the base of, of or the biggest percentage of our flowers. And instead of just doing one or two, um, we forced into going, we, we're almost in the 30s now, different varieties of chrysanthemums. Gosh. Then on the lilies, we do Asiatic lilies, Orientals, and St. Joseph's throughout the year. And then in summertime, obviously, Gladiolus, which is indigenous. Um, and then wintertime, Iris and Freesia, and some tulips. And the numbers of those uh, chrysanthemums, we, we, we bring in 150,000 cuttings a week. Um, and on the lilies, we import between 500,000 and 750,000 of all of those that I've just mentioned. Wow. And these... Inca lilies, we, we've got the biggest planting of Inca lilies. Um, um, fancy name is Alstromeria in the country. That's around a hectare. Um, there we have 10 kilometers of, of pipe below soil where we manipulate soil temperature. Um, wintertime we heat the, the water and hence the soil. Summertime we cool it down with fancy heat exchange pumps, all in an effort to, to get the maximum quality to, to the end user. We also do greens, in other words, foliage plants that we use as, as fillers in the bouquets. Um, and then annuals also, Queen Anne's Lace, Sweet Williams, um, that type of thing. Gosh, it sounds like an art and a science. I mean, you know, it leans, and it's a whole sort of new, new look at going going into a store and buying your, or even going anywhere and, and buying a lovely bunch of flowers, which seems so sort of so romantic. And this uh, uh, art and a science—that's it's probably quite close to the truth, really, because you can't afford to have too much crop failure. I suppose are they grown under very controlled conditions? Yes, we we. we Look, it's, it's, it's manipulated. We, we manipulate as much as we can, but it's, it's up to a pointer. Um, you, you would, chrysanthemums, for instance, in, in nature, they flower in autumn. So when we bring the cuttings in, they're all unrooted, no roots whatsoever on them. Um, we bring them in, and then they go in a specific rooting area, and 10 to 12 days later, they're ready to be planted out of the beds. But because they flower in nature in autumn, we have to manipulate the day length. So there's a fancy computer, and as soon as the sun sets, it closes blackout screens. 
uh, speech back inside the greenhouse, the lights go on, and we increase the day length. So the plant thinks it's summer. And it grows vegetatively, meaning it makes leaves the whole time. And then if we wanted to fly off for argument's sake for Valentine's on the 9th of February, to give us time to go through the harvest and the bouquet manufacturing, we didn't decrease the day length before the 9th. Uh, thereby in thinking, uh, making the plant think that it's autumn, and then it goes into flower. That's the basic principle. Golly, it's, it sounds very, very finely controlled. Yes, we can, we can manipulate chrysanthemums for uh, up to a day, specifically, like I said, for the ninth, for instance. Yeah. We can send it to, to the ninth. You mentioned, and I think I got this right, the greenhouse, the straight net structures, was it? Yeah, shade net. Oh, shade, shade net. Sh shade net, shade net structures. By, and presumably by using shade net structures, you're able to eliminate any sort of bugs and beetles. What is the biggest threat? And are you using any sort of insecticides, pesticides? The biggest threat, the biggest single threat uh, above ground. There's, there's issues below soil as well. Above ground, the biggest issue, I think, in, in floriculture internationally is, is something called Californian thrips. Now, thrips is, is a, a little insect, two millimeters long. Uh, the females are the issue, funnily enough, um, as they lay up to 150 eggs per day. And then, obviously, with that type of life, life cycle, whatever you spray, um, they, they quickly become resistant to it. So we have to be very aware of not only what we spray, but your, 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 your um, enemy as well. You have to get to know exactly when they do what, their life cycle, um, and then, obviously, try and interfere with that um, by using... Previously, people used lots of chemicals, as in everywhere. I mean, Oak Valley is, is a big place. There's, there's lots of fruit here. There's, there's everything going on. Um, and part and parcel of what we do is to look at, at, at nature and, and not interfere too much with chemicals. Um, it's the nice BWI farm of the country, and, and, and. But the same with the flowers. You have to move, because of the accreditation things, and, and it's ethically just the right thing to do anyway, is to move away from chemicals as yeah. much as possible. And the only way to do that is, is to get to know your enemy. Um, there's this different, uh, it's called IRAC. IRAC is the Insecticide Resistance Action Committee. Mm. It's an international group of experts. Um, they've got a website. You go on the website and, and different, different chemicals with different chemical makeups might seem different, but they're not because the methodology that they use to kill the insect is the same thing. So then, in effect, you are spraying the same thing. So by using that, the international advice, um, from these experts, you can then stay away from the different groups for as long as possible, and, and it does work, um, thereby reducing your, your dependence and your efficacy uh, is increased on, on, on killing insects. Ooh. It certainly seems like the whole thing is, is very much keeping you on your toes. Just going back to, uh, you know, the, the, the obedience of the flowers or, you know, the control, to what sort of level of wastage do you have, and what do you do with waste? I, I remember, and this is really not relevant, but when you were talking about tulips in Amsterdam, I remember seeing um, sh rather shocking photographs of a whole field full of, pop of tulips that uh, one minute were all there and the next minute they'd all been beheaded. Um, just because I don't know exactly how you know they work with the tulips in Amsterdam, but I remember thinking, thinking a bit shocked by that. Do you have a lot of wastage, and what do you do with it? Is it compostable? Do you, what do you do? Just to, just to make you feel better about the tulip murder, um, what they do is the guys that you see taking the heads off are bulb producers. In other words, that's, oh, the, guy, okay. that's the guy that we buy the bulbs from. Oh, okay. so, so the flower takes about 80%, as a norm, it, it takes yeah. about 80% of the energy off the bulb, and that's not what they want. 
So they, they take the flies off as soon as possible, and then we, we, we're the type of people then that buys that bulb. Oh, okay. That's why they're doing it. Gosh, so that's I'm, a bulb producer yes. where we are cut flower producers. So that's why they, they murder them. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a bit like seeing those sort of dolphins being beaten in Denmark. No, I'm, with you, I'm with you. But then uh, back to the waste question. Um, overall, look, we do all the, the, the manufacturing side of the bouquets for, for the bigger chain stores also. We, we have over 100 florists that we supply. We supply um, some of them all, um, call them famous uh, chain stores. We do the bouquets, the tissue, the sellotape, the sleeve, the wrapping, the designs, the everything, the guarantees, the pricing, everything happens with us. But as, as a norm um, for the business, we aim below. We aim to get below 1% waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and the waste that is generated, something like the chrysanthemums and the bulbs are harvested only once off. Um, whatever then remains from a green uh, matter point of view is composted. And then recently, well, recently, the last couple of years, we switched over to an earthworm system where we feed all that, that green waste to the earthworms. We produce about 20 cubic meters of green waste per day. That is then fed to the earthworms, and the vermicost and vermitea is then um, put back into the system with very impressive results. Wow, that, the whole thing sounds extremely impressive to me. <laughs> all these rows and rows of flowers, absolutely extraordinary. You're not, you're not big on the aesthetics of it, but you did mention there that you put everything together and, and Valentine's Day for you is done and dusted. Mother's Day we can look forward to. Do we, do we know what we can expect for Mother's Day? What, what's, what's South Africa's most, or what's the Western Cape's favourite flower? Well, internationally it's, it's roses and, and South Africa as well. Um, Personally, I disagree with that, but then I'm obviously in the wrong if, if, if the rest of the world says that it, it has to be roses. My, my issue with the roses is the price and, and the vast life, and all the rose farmers will definitely start mailing me already. Uh, we don't do roses, we buy them in. Um, internationally, they are the, are the most popular. Um, I would prefer something like a lily, or uh, personal favorite is, is the Alstroemeria, the Inca lilies. Um, but that's because I'm biased. Um, colored trends tends to differ. It depends on the designers that we work with at the chain stores. A couple of years ago, orange was big, even during Christmas and Mother's Day. Um, now no, it's not. So it, it, it's a little bit all over the place at the moment, but there, there would be people better qualified than I am to tell you exactly what, what the ranges are. I, I guess the most important thing is that there's some green in there somewhere along the line. Well, Carl, I, w- I wish you success and joy with your lilies, and <laughs> and thank you very much for sharing. I'm going to give your website. I think it's oakvalley.co.za. Yes. Can people find out more about what you do there at the flower farm? Yeah, there's, there's, there's not. Um, you, you have a look at the website. There's, okay. there's, there's quite a few aspects to the farm. It was, it was um, started off uh, way back in 1898 all in the same family, so it's a very interesting story and a very interesting farm to visit with, with feed ranch pigs, more than 4,000 oak trees on the farm, there's a restaurant, there's, there's massive apple set up, there's vineyards, there's wine, there's, there's, and the flowers, obviously. Free ranch piggeries, everything on the farm. Wow, it's, uh, it's the ultimate green destination. It is, it is. Lovely. And then, and then is, uh, coming up is, is the um, Cape Epic mountain bike race. It's also very close, and it's, it's a sticks time that they're coming to the farm. So it, it, it's a nice area. The valley is very nice to come to, Elgin. Um, and then have a look at the website. Well, you make it sound extremely tempting. Coral Herber, thank you very much. Happy Valentine's Day for tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Coral Herber, Oak Valley Flower Farmer. There's all sorts of things going on at Oak Valley. If you'd like to check it all out, including the Cape Epic coming up soon, oakvalley.co.za. Well, we're moving on. We promise you renewable energy, and that's what we're going to get, uh, because coming up next month is REFSA. That's the Renewable Energy Forum of South Africa. Their Pan-African Conference is happening on the 4th and 5th of March at Norton Rose Fulbright in Santon. 
Well, the conference is the brainchild of Linda Olagunju. She's the founder and managing director of DLO Energy Resources. And her dream, and I absolutely love this, her dream is to light up the continent. What a wonderful dream. And uh, even more so to do it um, with, not with coal-hungry electricity, but with renewable energy. Well, we're going to be talking to one of her delegates in just a minute. He's Ayodele Oni. He's a lawyer with Banwo and Igodalo from Nigeria. But first, we've got Linda on the line to tell us about her dream. I had a dream. Hi, Linda. <laughs> Hi. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> yes. How is your dream coming along in terms of lighting up Africa? Oh, well, we're doing very fine. Uh, South Africa has, you know, done very well in introducing renewable energy into the national grid. Currently, we were voted the 12th most uh, attractive investment destination for renewables globally. I think that's quite a huge accomplishment, um, especially for a country which uh, not so long ago didn't really have a regulatory framework for renewables. We have over 150 billion rand attracted in foreign direct investment into the country. So I think we're doing very well as a country, but I'd like to see a lot more activity on the continent. But it seems the continent itself is also uh, starting to catch up uh, and actually uh, in some instances uh, surpassing us. So uh, I think we are well on our way in terms of achieving the dream of, one, lighting Africa up, which is important because we have a huge electricity deficit, and two, doing so uh, using clean energy. It's, it's wonderful to hear what you're saying, and it's in absolutely stark contrast to what uh, our earlier guest was saying. He was from Earth Life Africa, and he was listening to the President's State of the Nation address, um, in which he was saying that they, we weren't doing well at all. And um, Earth Life, as you probably know only too well, I'm sure, Linda, mm. you know, the whole issue about what Earth Life have got to say about ESCOM producing, you know, not being compliant to air pollution standards. Are we really doing that well? We actually uh, must say the the criticism of government, uh, particularly when it comes to renewables, would be quite unfounded, I must say. Um, if you look at it, in 2003, we had a white paper on renewables, and then there was silence. Then we had the rolling blackouts in 2008, and the country realized we were in serious crisis. We needed electricity, no matter the form. Then uh, we went on to build the two largest coal-fired plants in the world, which is Kusile and Medubi, uh, which are still under construction. And uh, during that process as well, we started to think about alternative energy, such as renewables, because the construction time is is obviously shorter, and uh, the costs as well are obviously uh, lower. So um, I think it is quite unfair to say that we haven't made progress in that sense, because in 2011, we had our first renewable energy IPP uh, round. We reached financial close in 20, uh, at the end of uh, 2012 in November, and that was the first IPP uh, program under the Democratic uh, Government of South Africa. Since then, we've had three um, rounds which have been successful of an international standard and, as I said earlier, rated the 12th most attractive investment destination for renewables globally. Um, and if you ask anyone who's investing in the renewable energy sector, you will find that they do, um, they do commend government on this program. It's perhaps one of the most well-run uh, uh, public programs we've had mm. in our history. Uh, it's interesting that your conference is a pan-African one, and you say that we're the twelfth most attractive, or twelve, one of the most attractive uh, investment destinations globally. Elsewhere in Africa, and I think we do have on the line Ayodele Oni. He is from from um, Nigeria. Uh, uh, Ayodele, are you with us? 
Hello? Yes, I am with you. Hi. Can you hear us all right? Yes, I can. Okay. Just tell us very briefly the renewable energy situation in your country is doing well. Give us a picture of how it is. Okay. With respect to renewable energy, it's, it's relatively new in this part of the world, in, in Nigeria, where I do reside and work. Um, it's, it's relatively new in terms of having a regulatory regime. Um, up until 2003, we didn't even have a policy on renewable energy. You know, we've struggled with the power sector for several decades now. But in 2003, there was a national electric power policy and that had issues around renewable power, and um, particularly with respect to solar, wind, biomass, from the small hydro plants not exceeding 30 megawatts. From that time up to this time, particularly with the reforms in the power sector, people are looking to do beyond thermal power and um, fossil fuels. People are looking to have renewable power projects. And I know a few years ago, two years ago, two projects, two renewable projects were licensed. And we've got a couple of smaller um, power projects of less than one megawatt that are already operational, particularly for street lighting. That's just mm-hmm. been done for street lighting. And, you know, like, like I mentioned, our country is, is undergoing reforms. So because of the reforms, people are looking at a broader energy mix. And really, there's, there's, that, that, that's where we are. And there's a multi-year tariff order that regulates grid supply of electric power. And that multi-year tariff order specifies pricing for renewable energy. And that, that is quite generous. The pricing regime for renewable energy takes into consideration the cost of developing such plants and such projects. So it's much higher than um, the, the tariffs for, for thermal plants and fossil yeah. fuel plants. So that's where we are. So there are a couple of projects in the pipeline. Is there a big demand for renewable energy? I mean, that's, that's probably quite a I haven't put that question very well. But is there a, a big awareness of the the downside of coal-powered energy? Is, is there a sort of a big, strong green movement in Nigeria that's calling for more renewable energy? Oh, yeah, to, to a large extent, because everyone is thinking about going green, everyone understands the fact that um, fossil fuels are non-renewable, and everyone seems to also know that we need a much stronger energy mix. Without that, we can achieve. It. We are looking at having 40,000 megawatts by the year 2020, so that we can be a top 20 economy in the world. And without having a proper energy mix that takes into consideration. Even our natural resources, are uh, what Mother Nature has got to offer. We've got states, we've got a, a diverse um, climatic situation such that certain states in Nigeria can very easily support solar radiation. Other states can very easily support wind power. So what we believe, apart from using gas or taking, using coal, we need to also consider um, renewable energy. Everyone's looking to, to have a broader energy mix, and particularly because it's profitable. Yes. And also because we realize that the, the projects we are currently have 
or our, our, our currently ongoing cannot meet our demand in the medium term. Yes. So, there, yeah, so there's so much interest. Yeah, not just profitable, but hopefully job creation, job creating, which I think is something we're hoping for down here in South Africa as well. You are um, a lawyer, Ayodele. Is there, are there sort of legal issues? We were also hearing earlier about uh, environmental impact assessments, about public comment, about, you know, people being overridden. As a lawyer, what is, what is your interest here? Okay. Um, my interest is, is, is threefold. First, um, we're, we're looking to support um, the government in its policy of reducing environmental degradation. Um, we're also looking to support new projects, support the new projects and support the policy of the government. And we also understand that the more projects we, we've got, the more jobs can be created, the less environmental pollution would have. Like many, many people are aware of the issues we've had in Nigeria's Niger Delta, where there's a lot of oil and gas exploration. And because there's been a lot of environmental degradation, we consider that if we've got a broader energy mix, particularly covering renewable energy, um, we would have less crisis would have more transactions and there would be more opportunities for everyone, including lawyers, to provide, <laughs> provide advice. Ayodele, your line is not terribly, terribly clear, but I think, we, I think we've got it. But thank you very much for sharing with us and uh, very best of luck and enjoy the conference that's uh, coming up very soon on the 4th and 5th of March. Ayodele Oni, a lawyer there with Banwo Igodalo. Um, Ninda, going to come back to you um, just, you know, we, I think that this you've expanded since last year. I think you just had a day-long conference last year. This year, it's two days. What are the expected outcomes of this? I mean, are we going to be moving the industry forward? Um, yes, we definitely have expanded. One of the feedback we got last year was that the conference was so useful and so impactful. Why? Um, why, why was it useful and impactful? I, I, I think the the... The highlight or, or the key selling point is that we, one, um, for example, I'm involved in the IPP process myself, and the, uh, we bring in people who are involved in the process. So we're not just conference organizers, we're bringing industry together to discuss the key and pertinent issues that affect industry and government in one room. So it's not just a talk shop. I found that as a result of that conference, a, a, a lot of um, Dialogue has happened outside the conference. A lot of alliances um, have happened, and a lot of uh, a, a lot of progress has uh, has stemmed from it. So it's, it's almost a unifying factor amongst us as developers uh, in a, in approaching government stakeholders uh, to better the system where where we think it needs to be improved. So I think from from that standpoint, uh, we, we we certainly do add value to those who do attend. And the reason behind the expansion this year, if you've been following what's been happening in the sector, is that the South African market is now becoming what we term really uh, mature. Uh, we've done three successful rounds of 
said, we're going on to our fourth round. Um, and if you look at it, our population is 50 million vis-a-vis, for example, a country like Nigeria, which is sitting at roughly 170 million. Um, and, uh, there are opportunities for South African companies that have learned the lessons within the South African sector and want to expand their, their brands um, across the continent. We have a, a unique skill set which we've gone through through this process, which I think could be beneficial for us um, in terms of exporting that in South Africa in the rest of the continent as South African-owned companies as well. So you're starting to see a lot of investors wanting to diversify that portfolio and not just be exposed to the South African market. So that's why Africa is of interest to all of us. And um, that's why the conference is obviously taking into account the, the, the fact that people want to hear about that, and many people may not be able to jump on a plane and go off to, say, um, Nigeria or Angola. Yes. So we, what we've done is we've brought uh, the, the key and relevant people to them, such as Ayodele, who can speak to the regulatory framework in his country more, more so than we can. Yes, and we can prevent people jumping onto planes who will be saving the carbon footprint too. Um, You know, renewable energy feels like the right thing to do in terms of the planet. But leaving aside the morals or the ethics, two questions just lastly. Is there a feeling that the government is sufficiently sufficiently supportive of renewable energy? You know, there's a sort of groundswell of people who don't feel they're doing enough. It's still too expensive. There's not enough uh, uh, will. And is it really a very strong area for job creating? Okay. On on the first uh, account, I'll definitely say that, um, and and this is not because I'm involved, but government definitely is doing um, a very good job with the program. Like I said, it's a very sophisticated program. And I think uh, there is definitely a support. I think where people are um, are more, um, let's say, complaining about renewables is at a domestic and household level and maybe at a municipal level. Uh, There we definitely could do a lot more about energy efficiency, which is totally different from putting renewables on the national grid. Mm. I think as a country as a whole, we could do a lot more about uh, energy efficiency and and building green buildings, etc. So I don't think we're doing very well on that front. However, I think we're doing very well on, on, on putting nas- uh, on putting the renewables onto the national grid. On the issue of pricing and costs, you'd be interested to know that uh, in this third bidding round, because of the competitive bidding, uh, wind energy has come up 30% cheaper than coal-fired mm. plants. Mm. So we, renewables is definitely getting something right, even from a pricing uh, perspective. So it's no longer justified to say that coal is uh, necessarily cheaper than renewables. Yeah, so from yeah. a cost perspective, renewables does look out cheaper. Yeah, from I, a job creation yeah. perspective, um, a lot of jobs have been created by this industry. A lot of towns which were, like I would call them, you know, not maybe an economic hub, have turned into economic hubs. So sleepy towns like Daar and Preska have now become vibrant, um, particularly because there's a lot of construction going on there with these projects being built, a lot of jobs being created. And also, we don't just look at direct jobs from the project itself. You look at, you know, people who are small business owners and suppliers. So you'll, you'll find in Daar now, it's very expensive to get property there. Uh, it's um, getting bread and breakfast there. So there's a new industry that sort of uh, transformed the entire town. I, I suppose and it's doing, yes, yeah. I was going to say, it's sort of doing what, what, uh, what gold did for Johannesburg all those years ago. Exactly, exactly. Linda, we're going to, yeah. 
One of the key things government wanted to achieve with this program was we don't only just want um, electricity on the uh, clean electricity on the grid. We also want to make sure we have a social economic development aspect to these projects. And you'll be interested to know as well there's a requirement that the communities in which these projects are built are actually owners, shareholders in these projects. Oh, so good. that is a government requirement. So that's what I'm saying to you. Uh, there's thought about everything in this process from economic development to economic empowerment yeah. as well. Linda, um, we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I feel talking to you, it's been a bit like sort of opening Pandora's box and finding a little hoop <laughs> flying okay. up. So very best of luck, more power literally to your elbow. And uh, perhaps look forward to hearing about the outcomes of the uh, the conference on the 4th and 5th of March. If anybody would, is it open to the public quickly? Yes, it is. Okay. They can uh, go to our website, www.refsaconference.com. RefsaConference.com. Fantastic. Very best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. That was uh, that was Linda Olagonju. And if you'd like to know a little bit more, check the site. It's www.refsaconference.com. RefsaConference.com. You heard it right here on the Enviro Show. A little bit of good news. Well, to close a green goodie, I think, uh, certainly in fashion terms, famous luxury brand Burberry have committed to removing all hazardous chemicals from its products. And I think they've had a little bit of pressure from uh, Greenpeace to do this. Good news and bad news, because we've also heard, that, unfortunately, that uh, Burberry actually are still using fur in their products. So maybe not such good news after all. But we've got Ilza Smith, who is the detox campaigner at Greenpeace, to tell us all about it. Hi, Ilza. Hi. Hi. Good Thank you very much for joining us. Tell us what they were doing wrong and tell us how they're putting it right. Um, we did a testing of uh, children's clothes ranking from um, uh, really uh, cheap clothes to really expensive clothes like Burberry. And we found in the 12 brands that we sampled uh, toxic chemicals. Um, and then we challenged Burberry to, to stop using those uh, toxic chemicals and um, sign up to detox. And that's what they did. And it was as simple as that. Twelve brands you saw. No. <laughs> no, I bet it wasn't, it wasn't as simple that as that. Simple. No, absolutely. But the good news is that they're doing it. Twelve, but just quickly, twelve brands you found that twelve were using toxic chemicals. Are all, um, is a textile industry not all using toxic chemicals? Well, every time we sample, we do find uh, a range of uh, hazardous chemicals in, in clothing. And we did expect that for Children clothing, uh, it would be less, um, but unfortunately, it was the same as with adult uh, clothing. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a real problem in the uh, textile industry, and um, they really should clean up and and take uh, this as a serious uh, signal. Um, because they have the responsibility, but also the possibility to go to their supply chain and, and a different kind of production. It's quite scary to think that we're all wearing these fibres and these garments that are all sorts of chemicals in them that could be sort of, you know, seeping into our bodies one way or another. But let me not be a scaremonger. They've, they well, have... it, it, to be honest, it's, it's an indirect health effect. So what we have found, for example, are uh, chemicals that are so persistent that they will end up in the environment uh, in our food chain, and in that way, it will enter our body. Um, the good news that I have today is that it will not go through your skin um, in such. Okay. In such. 
But, uh, you know, when you think of how many clothes end up in landfills and that those are all going to sort of degrade one way or another and, as you say, seep into the land, let's not take it too far. So the Burberry have said, OK, we are going to go, we're going to go chemical-free and I think Primark have, are following their lead. What are they using instead of chemicals then? Well, they are banning all hazardous chemicals, so okay. we don't request to ban all chemicals because then it would not be possible exactly. to. Um, and chemicals are not bad as such. So they just use um, good chemicals. Um, there are um, a wide range of alternatives on the market. Um, you should substitute the um, bad chemical for the good chemical. Um, what are the, um, what are the very... a lot of brands doing so. What are the very bad chemicals? What should we be being wary of? Well, we have the hormone-disrupting nonifenol. Uh, this is um, uh, especially uh, polluting our, wa our local waterways around the world. And uh, it has to uh, make uh, male fish take on uh, female characteristics, for example. So that I found pretty scary. But it's also um, perfluorinated chemicals, which makes your um, coat, for example, water-resistant. Uh, this chemical now turns out to be um, more and more evidence comes out that it's it's really bad for the environment, but also to to our health in the long term. Certainly, it's not the sort of thing you're going to read on a label. You might read on a label that a product was made in China or India or South Africa, hopefully, but uh, you're not going to read what all the ingredients are. So, had it not been for people like yourselves who were actually doing the sampling and the testing, we might never have known these things. Well, yeah, that's really unfortunate that you're not able to, to know from the label um, yeah. what kind of uh, toxic chemicals um, are used, and that's why we're doing this uh, testing. It's random testing. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot say about every piece uh, that you buy in the store uh, what kind of chemicals uh, it contains. Um, but we are very hopeful. Now, uh, we have 20 brands who signed up to detox. So um, in the near future, uh, consumers will be able to pick those stores over the other ones. And knowing that not even one hazardous chemical mm. will be used um, or released for the production, well, and wonderful that you've will got not end up in the textiles. Wonderful that you've got this uh, that you've got this ball rolling. Just very lastly, I'm going to advise people to go onto your website if they'd like to know more. It's greenpeace.org. But lastly, Ilza, this is a big one in a very short space of time. Apparently, Burberry are still using fur. Um, foxes, raccoon dogs, and mink all end up in their collections. Is that something that uh, that Greenpeace might also uh, have a word with Burberry about? Yeah, well, that's awful. And I, I've seen the campaign, and I think it's a very important campaign. And I assume, I cannot, I, I cannot think that uh, after taking an incredible step towards a toxic-free future, that Burberry wouldn't you know, commit to a ban all fur. Yeah. Uh, so I, I am sure they will take a stand on that. Yeah, it seems to be pretty indefensible. Ilza, we've run out of time, but thank you very much and well done and do keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Bye -bye. Ilza Smith, Detox Campaigner at Greenpeace. And if you'd like to find out more, greenpeace.org. And if you'd like to hear it all over again, don't forget you can find us where podcast, www.safm.co.za. You can find podcasts of everything, include all sorts of things, including the Enviro Show. Thanks, team. That's Kim Winter and Derek Fordyce, and I'm Nancy Richards. And up next, it's definitely time for Stephen Kirker and a little bit of news and a little bit of music. Hi, Stephen.